Hey, my name is Amy Berry. Um, I am director of discipleship here at Valley Hope Church. Um, that is, I've been doing that for a week, so I'm learning a lot. Um, but it has been a really fun week. I've loved it. And one ways that I am really excited to see um, this whole unity lived out, that we get to be in community with each other. And one of the things that I get to do is coordinate and oversee our small group ministry, which is called Missional Community Groups. Um, if you are in one, you know that that is awesome and can be super life-giving, challenging at times for sure. If you are not in one and would like to be in one, there's a place for you to register on our website or you can always reach out to me and I can put you in one that, that works for you. If you are in one and it is not working, this has been an interesting time for us to try to figure this out based on group size and comfort level, reach out to me. And I would love to um, put you in a place where you are going to grow and thrive. And these groups are meant to be um, places where we go deep with each other, we connect with God, and then we are always looking out to the community around us and hoping to bring people in one step closer to Jesus. Another way we do that is through life transformation groups. And this is two to three um, of the same gender meeting together to pr pray and confess their sins to one another. It's so much fun, guys. Um, but really, it's great, and it's a great practice, and it's a great habit. Um, so if you would like to be connected to that, again, you can register on the website, or you can talk to me. Um, my office is right there really right behind that wall and my door is open when I am here so please reach out if you need anything and I'm excited for what's next good morning I'm Anthony, if we don't know each other. Um, I'm a pastor here at Valley Hope. <clears throat> Hello to all the people online who are joining us this morning. Um, can I get all the kids to stand up? I can say elementary school and under. I don't want to you know, make the middle schoolers and high schoolers be freaked out. I'm intruding on your coolness. So elementary school and older. Can you stand up? Do this? Okay. Can you touch your elbows? Both of them. Both elbows. Like this. That. Kind of like you're giving yourself a hug. Okay, you ready? Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for these kids in our midst. Thank you uh, that they're here. And we pray that you'd help them hear and to listen and to hear your love for them. That just as it feels like they're giving themselves a hug, that you would bless them with an embrace from you. Let them know that they're welcomed here and enjoyed and loved by us, but by you even more so. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, you can sit down. Actually, Rigby, stand up. This man right here, it's his birthday. Today, right? One decade of life. Two whole hands. That's a big one. So we salute you, sir. Glad you can be here with us. You can sit down now. You don't have to stand the whole time. That would be a lot. Um, 
We are here on November 8th, uh, five days after the election, and um, you know the, the vote tallying is, I guess, still happening. It's nearing the end or whatever, but I've, I've checked the latest maps, and it does appear that Jesus is still the king of the whole universe. Yeah, he did it. Um, that has not changed. Um, that was my personal election proje- uh, projection, and it has come true. Um, we we uh, gratefully proclaim the sovereignty of God, and uh, you know I heard I saw some discourse online about how saying that around an election when some people are so angry and some people are so happy is uh, minimizes their pain or their happiness, and that is not correct. That is not the way that we are saying. This is not like a, a silencer, like you can't feel those things because God is in control. No, no, no. It's because we feel those things that we confess it. It is the, the, the best um, preachers and proclaimers of God's sovereignty are those who have suffered. And so uh, if you're in a season of, of whatever, despair or anxiety because of the election, or if you are in a season of rejoicing because of the election, whatever it is, Jesus' sovereignty uh, right-sizes everything, helps us see anything, everything in its proper perspective, and beckons us to trust him. Um, so, I was, um, I was at a friend's ordination yesterday. At, at, he was becoming ordained as a deacon in the Anglican Church uh, in West Asheville. And, you know, it's, if you've been in an Anglican service, it's, it can be, well, in this country, uh, it's often very quiet, um, pretty solemn occasion. He's laying down on the ground in front of the bishop about to be ordained, and there's just honking outside. People are just driving up and down the street in West Asheville, honking, cheering, because they're happy about the outcome that was announced um, in that part of town. Obviously, people feel different in other parts of town. Uh, And I was really struck by that. Um, And what I thought was, won't it be excellent when the city... When the valley recognizes Jesus' kingship and responds to that kind of joy. Um, how, how good will it be if, if me, I personally, respond to Jesus' kingship with that kind of outward joy and trust? Um, we long for that day. We are looking for that day in our valley. We want to see the kingdom of Jesus transform the Swannanoa Valley so that people are that excited to announce the reign of King Jesus, which of course is not waiting for a starting date. It's happened already since before the world began uh, and will surely last forever and ever. Amen. Um, we're going we're gonna to take a look at that, an aspect of Jesus' reign. Because he's the sovereign king, we're going to be reading in Isaiah 25. We're in a series on the book of Isaiah. I'm going to reference talk about Isaiah 24, but I'm going to read all of Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you've been a stronghold to the poor, 
a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breadth of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for... These, your scriptures, your word to us. We pray that we would attend to these words. We pray that our hope would be set on you. And God, I pray that this word will kindle hope in you. And all the places where we have put our hopes outside of you, this word will crush them. Jesus, we look to you as our good and faithful and constant Lord over heaven and earth. We come gather around you now, Lord Jesus. We ask that our hearts would be soft, that we might respond in love to the love that you've given so freely for us. Amen. Isaiah 24, that we did not read, is very different in tone from Isaiah 25, which we did read. Um, Isaiah 24 is an announcement and a description of the judgment of God over the whole earth. It's cataclysmic in nature and description. It is like the skies are crashing down upon the earth. Every single power that is arrayed against God is destroyed. It is a day, as the scriptures say, of deep darkness and of terror in ways. Here's just a little taster. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. But... Isaiah 25 is looking on the other side of that judgment and is then at the beginning of this uh, chapter singing a song. So there's a song and a description and a song that fills out chapter 25. And this first song is describing a praise to God for doing this thing that's described in Isaiah 24. Because what God has done is when he, when he judged is he's come and he's crushed the enemy city. He has opposed those who have opposed God, and he's wiped them out. And the city is not named, uh, but it doesn't really need to be. It it could have been Babylon, or or the capitals of Assyria, or Moab, or Edom, or Egypt, or all, or any of these places. It's any city that is built up in opposition to God. God is going to come and crush. And so there's celebration that God would do this thing. 
But then there's description of what will happen after that. And what's described is this ingathering to the mountain of God. And there's a feast that's described with, with wine and rich food and celebration. And God will come and swallow up death, he says. He'll wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people. And then it closes with another song. That the empires of this world will not be able to have victory against the empires of our God. That the one who we have waited for will faithfully, faithfully come. Um, there is a, a certain kind of misunderstanding of, of what we believe here, uh, both for people outside of the church and often, in my experience, as I've taught classes at Montreat, people who've grown up inside the church. The people often believe that the sum total of Christian hope is that when you die, you will not have to be afraid of what will happen to you. And it's true, that's a significant part of Christian hope. But if you listen to the words of Isaiah chapter 25 here, the vision for what God wants to do in the world is even bigger than that. Because any sort of formulation where you're just saying, what God wants to do is make me feel better about what happens after I die, is still putting into the story the essential element of death. And what I think a lot of times people either explicitly ask or implicitly is, what good is this news to me until the day that I die? What good is this news to me right now? All I'm waiting for is the day of my death to receive the benefit of this good news. And Isaiah's vision is much larger than the moment when you breathe out your last breath. But it is instead zeroing in on that enemy that robs it. Death is coming for all of us. Every single person. It's coming for all of us. It is inescapable. And there is a, a natural kind of question for us and for everyone else in the world. What is God going to do with this world that you are saying God has made in goodness? We, we are saying our belief is that God is the creator of all things. And he did not create this world because he needed to. There was no obligation. There was no loneliness in him. He created everything out of the inexpressible overflow of his divine life. There's a superabundance of his joy and life that results in creation. And he made humanity, he made all of creation to be able to dwell in that perpetual welling up of his own life. And yet here we all are saying that we are confronted in this world that he made out of his joy in life with this ever-present power of death. And that is the problem. That itself is the problem, that this world that God made to dwell in with us is haunted by the specter of death. 
and we cannot shake it. We can only distract ourselves from it. But the wisdom literature of the Bible often emphasizes the necessity of considering your death. The book of Ecclesiastes is entirely framed around that reality. You are going to die. What is the point of your life? The wisdom literature will keep pressing this. How will you live your life in light of this truth? We see the vicious nature of death when we see young people, loved ones, people who we feel should be far from death, snatched away from us in an untimely manner with a grief that hollows people out that you cannot even begin to come to grips with. And when we see that in our lives or in the lives of our friends, the horror of death is presented to us. But we also see death as this kind of mysterious figure at times that we, we even welcome. You know people who've lived a long and full life. Their days have been filled up with goodness. And they mercifully come to the end of their time. They breathe their last. And they rest. And so when, when that happens... We, we don't tend to see death as the invasive figure as we do in the first circumstance. And in fact, there's, we can experience a little bit of both. I, uh, I've been watching this show with my family, The World's Toughest Race. Um, I don't know if you've seen the show. It's on Amazon Prime. Um, it's about the eco-challenge race in Fiji, which is... 66 teams of four people who are absolutely insane. And they run very far, and they ride bikes up mountains of mud and and paddle down rivers with sticks and intentionally give themselves hypothermia for days on end without sleep so that they can be first across the line. I don't know. They're crazy people, okay? And no point have I ever wanted to be one of them. My wife has. I do not want that for my life. The, you can't get to know every, you know, that's 200 and whatever, 68 people of, of racers. You don't get to know all of them. But they zoom in on, on a few teams. And what, for me, the most compelling story is a, a team that is just trying to finish. They're lagging way in the back. They know they're never going to win. They just want to finish. And two members of the team are a father and son. And the father is uh, in his late 50s, early 60s. He's a veteran of these races, kind of a legend of these races. And his son is now an elite racer who's racing with his aging father. And his father has Alzheimer's. He's been recently diagnosed. And so as they are progressing through and barely making these time markers... This son is, on one hand, grateful for every day that he, as they say, this father and son get to play together. And yet, he carries a notable grief because he knows that his father is going to disappear before his eyes. 
But he, he is saying to his father out loud, embracing him and carrying him through these obstacles and saying, I will make sure that your grandchildren know who you really are. And so they, they are, in one sense, haunted by death's chasing them. And yet they can freely confess that they will at some point welcome death's coming because their father will be gone and all, for all intents and purposes. So death can visit us in a variety of ways. But death is woven in to the end of every one of our stories. And this is the problem. The problem is death itself. And what Isaiah is, is seeing, is, is foreseeing, is the day when God will make that not so. The vision is not just, how do we make sure that when you get to the end of your life, something good might happen on the other end of your death? That is important. But the vision is much bigger than me and you and us as individuals being able to, in peace, breathe our last. It is a forward look to the day when the breathing of, of the last will stop. Because the vision that Isaiah sees is the people of God will be brought to the mountain of God. And what will be there is not like a cloud and a harp for everyone to float on for all of eternity. What is there waiting is a banquet table in this rich celebration and this confession that God himself will take all of the, the garments for burial, the veil and the cover, and he will scoop them up himself, bundle them up, throw them over the shoulder and say, you'll never need these anymore. You're done with these. We're not going to need burial clothes anymore. And you're invited to feast with him Always, this language here that Isaiah uses is what Paul will pick up in the book of 1 Corinthians when he starts to talk about Christian resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, he will pull up this line that death itself will be swallowed. And he says, this is what Isaiah saw coming, even if he could not put words to it. Isaiah was looking ahead in hope and the vision of God's fulfillment of this plan when suffering and death would no longer be a part of the story. And he was looking forward in trust and hoping that God would bring this cataclysmic judgment upon the earth and somehow also bring his people to the mountain to feast with him. And what Paul is saying is we are not the people who look forward anymore. We first look backwards that something happened in history that makes us absolutely sure that we can trust that God will fulfill this plan. And what that thing is, is the resurrection of Jesus. Paul is saying, if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen in history, then we are a hopeless people. If, if the resurrection is not a thing that actually happened in real life with Jesus' real physical body, then we have no hope. Isaiah's 25 vision is not coming to pass. It's certainly not coming to pass in Jesus. But because it did, everything is changed. 
And now the Christian hope and expectation is not just that when we come to the day of our own dying, we can have peace knowing that we are going somewhere that God is, but that in the dying itself, we are experiencing something that is passing away, that will one day be done in the world. And notice the attentiveness that is described in Isaiah 25. That the Lord himself will wipe away the tears of his people. The Lord himself will stoop down low. An acknowledgement of our suffering and all the questioning of death. And will wipe away those tears and say, no more. It's over. The language that captured me, that really jumped out to me when I read this, is in verse 9 where it says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We have waited for him. There is so much weight in that waiting. For many of us, we have borne so many of our sorrows and sufferings. Physical pain, illness, loss of others. And we are just waiting and waiting and waiting because we are the people who don't just look back. We are the people who look forward in anticipation. We are not saying Jesus died and rose again and ascended to the Father and now the story is over and we draw our hope from the thing that happened behind us. We draw our hope from the thing that happened behind us. But we are joining, like Paul says in Romans chapter 8, with all of the creation and we are groaning and we are longing for the fulfillment of our hopes. We have received a down payment of the hope of Jesus the down payment of Isaiah 25. But we still have in us the questions that rise up when we face this suffering and pain and death and separation from loved ones. Where are you, O Lord? We are waiting. We are waiting for you. And all of those questions have been given a, a preemptory answer. The answer to our loss is the resurrection of Jesus. The answer to our own death is the resurrection of Jesus. The answer to all of the things that make this world fraught with danger and lack of certainty is the resurrection of Jesus. So when Isaiah describes that the needy have found their shelter in God, we can say now we find our shelter in him. He is the cloud that relieves us of the heat, the oppressive heat of living in this place. But one day the resurrection of Jesus provides for us permanent shelter, permanent completion in him. You and I were meant to contemplate the reality, the brevity of our life. And you may be teetering between two different options. On one hand, you may be teetering to the, off the edge of fear and despair. You are so grieved by the world around you. So grieved 
by the pain that you bear in your body, so grieved and afraid of the thing that is coming for you. Or you could be tilting off onto another abyss of perpetual distraction. I will never think about anything beyond this moment. I'll wrap myself in my own time and pursuits and pleasures to escape the thought that my life is a vapor. And what Isaiah 25 does is it interrupts our life and corrects us. Whatever mistake we are making, whichever other side of the road we are falling off of, the scriptures call us and bring us back to reality. On one hand, you do not have to despair. Your pain is real. Your suffering is real. The tears are real. Isaiah 25 is saying, don't cry. Just stop it. Stop your crying. He's saying the pain is real, but God will surely come and wipe your tears away because he will do something about that which torments you. And Isaiah 25 will take all of us who are distracted in the mundane obligations and temptations and pleasures of this life and will put in front of you, you have an enemy. And the things that you are investing yourself in will not deliver you from your enemy. Your obsession with comfort, your obsession with security and well-being, your, your compulsion to eat super well and work out every day to extend your life will not do the thing that you are hoping it will do. None of those things will deliver you. You need a rescuer. And the scriptures force us back onto the way of God which is to look at Jesus and Jesus alone as the sole source of your comfort and hope. And he has enough for you. If you are terrified this morning, if you are concerned, you are afraid, if you are plagued by the possibility or the presence of suffering, the God who loves you has entered into your suffering. He has embraced it for himself. And when he went into the grave, he dug death's grave. And he will swallow up that death and suffering forever. Endure and take heart. Your suffering has an end date and it will be ended forever. And if you have been consumed by distraction and by pretending that you have lived an an inconquerable, immortal life, Isaiah 25 will usher you back onto the way of looking at Jesus and saying, none of your efforts will save you. None of them. But Jesus will. And you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to constantly distract yourself or put all of your hope in the comforts of this world because you have a crucified and risen comforter who says that he will send his spirit to you to be your eternal comfort. People of God, look at Jesus this morning. Isaiah 25 presents a vision that is so breathtakingly, universally cosmic in nature that it sweeps us up into its story. We have hope for when our days come to an end. And we have hope that the end of our days will have an end. And in Jesus Christ, we have an inconquerable hope. This morning, would you turn away from either your fear and despair or from your distraction and come see him and find in him an eternal hope that cannot be taken away 
And the death itself will be like a breath against the wall and unable to destroy until he destroys death itself. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our great hope, that your plans for this world include us and are so much bigger than us. Lord Jesus, I pray that our hearts would be shaken out of slumber. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be, be moved out of despair. God, we, we are people that have wept, that, that have been unsure of what to do with the specter of death in our life, and that has scared us. I pray that we would all find our comfort in you, knowing that you will abolish and destroy this enemy that has stalked us. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us, those of us who have spent so much of our time distracted from the brevity of our life, distracted from considering what is ultimate in our lives and in this world. I pray, God, that we would receive the grace of being called out of that life of slumber instead move into a waking trust in you. God, I thank you that you can rescue us from these and all things and that you will do it to the praise of your name and for the good of your people. We love you, Jesus, and we are grateful for your love for us. Amen.